Just before we sing the word of God set to music after we pray. So we take verses and we sing those verses to get them in our memory. Today we're going to do the seven statements of the cross. And, uh, and then we're going to come back and we're in Revelation chapter 12, part 2, beginning at verse 6. We're going to continue on. A lot of stuff answered today from the fulfillment perspective. I'm really excited about it because uh, I learned some stuff uh, preparing. So I hope you are too. Welcome all you guys at home and of course those who are here in the uh, church studio. So let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we pause and thank you for life. We thank you for all things and uh, recognize so much of it goes by without us uh, considering you and your hand, uh, which provides all. And we just thank you, loving us so much. You gave us your only begotten son and, and uh, he came and he gave his life and, uh, for us and on our behalf. And we just rejoice and worship you for that. Lord, we pray that you'll move us by your spirit to the things that we talk about today, which are heavy, they're meaty, but we pray that whatever we need uh, for our spiritual growth will obtain and exit from this place and be Christians to our neighbors. Uh, help those who are struggling to be here for whatever reason, people who are struggling in the faith, in the state, in the nation, you'll be with them and, and that we'll move forward as uh, people of faith and people who love. So help us as we reflect upon your words uh, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hold your 
Okay, we uh, left off at verse 6 in Revelation chapter 12, and um, it says there, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And we talked all about that last week. Now let's go to uh, verse 7 and read through to verse 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. Now most people from the Christian uh, tradition or another tradition in the Christian realm, they believe that when Revelation talks about the devil being cast down, that we're talking about a war in heaven that occurred prior to the creation. That, and, and that is the standard view among most people. But when you start to get into fulfillment and you look closely, as we have done uh, through Revelation, you see some things differently. And that's what we're going to cover today. As a brief recap, we have the woman mentioned here. And that we have shown last week is heavenly Jerusalem. And she is represented as the mother of the covenant people. And we showed through scripture last week that she's the mother of the covenant people, the new covenant here, Jerusalem. And that she gives birth to a male child, which Revelation reveals to us is the Messiah, Jesus, who is the firstborn of the new covenant. The birthing happened at the resurrection. Listen, the birthing that it's talking about happened at the resurrection when God raised Jesus from the dead. That was her giving birth. How do we know that? Because that's how what Paul said in Acts 13.33. Paul said that when God said, this is my beloved son, this is my only begotten, he is talking about When he begat him from the grave, that is what he's talking about. And Acts 13.33 proves that. Paul citing the Old Testament scripture saying that's what we're talking about when God says that in this place. Therefore, we have some sense when John tells us here in Revelation that the male child, after being born, is caught up to the throne of God. We're talking about now at his resurrection. He's been caught up now. So the birthing was when he was resurrected, and now he's caught up, all right? And it appears that this moment in biblical history, there is the war in heaven with Satan and his angels. You see the difference? So typically people say, oh, that happened, or the LDS certainly teach. Listen, that happened at the beginning, and Satan was cast out, and they read Revelation, and that's what they say. But we can tell from a contextual analysis of Scripture that when God says, uh, this is my uh, only begotten son, quoting Paul in Acts 13, God is talking about when he raised him from the dead. That's when that Old Testament passage is assigned to him. He gets taken to heaven, is what Revelation tells us here, raised to heaven, and then Satan and his angels are cast out. You're going to see how Scripture will support this as we read it. So he's cast out at this time because of what happened just prior to the resurrection. What was it? It's what happened at the cross. At the cross, Satan lost the game. It was over for him, and he was defeated and judged. Remember when Jesus walked the earth a few days before his death, uh, he spoke of Satan and his power. He said in John 12, 31 through 32, Now, this is before Jesus is crucified, judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So we also know that later in John 16, 5 through 11, that Jesus makes the point clear that Satan was judged at the cross. That's when he was judged at the cross. So the imagery is Christ comes, 
Satan has the, the title deed to this world. He's reigned over it since Adam has fallen. He tests Jesus. He gives him this. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say, you can't. You don't have the right. He simply just quotes scripture and says, leave me alone. And, and then Christ goes, and before he dies, he says, listen, now Satan is cast out. And he's cast out from where? He's cast out from heaven, from the presence of heaven. Cast down to this earth with his angels. Because at the cross, Christ had the victory. He tells his disciples that he's going back to the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He tells how the Spirit would convict the world of sin and of, uh, and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he explains saying, ready, John 16, 9 through 11, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. You ready? Verse 11, of judgment. You ready? Because the ruler of this world is judged. He, Satan, was judged at the cross. And that judgment, when Christ resurrected, got Satan and his angels cast out from heaven. And he came down to earth during that period of time, and let me tell you something, Revelation is going to tell us what happens. It was a nightmare for those people at that time, a nightmare. So this phrase suggests that, well, let me just go on. Remember Jesus was saying all this at that time when he was walking the earth about this playing out with Satan and the angels and heaven and everything else. Verse 7 through 9, read it with me in Revelation. The war broke out in heaven. Or and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Okay? So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. By the way, that whole world is Gehe, I'm pretty sure in the Greek, I gotta check that. And he was cast out of the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So many believe that speaks of before the creation. It's not so. It occurred when Jesus had had the victory at the cross. And then it was Michael tossed them out when he ascended, when he resurrected to the Father. God does not even get involved. He's been defeated by Christ. And, uh, and, and, and his angels, uh, Michael and his angels toss him out of that environment. With the throwing out of Satan, heaven is told to rejoice. We're going to read that in a second. Okay? I find this fascinating because it suggests that until the victory Christ had over Satan at the cross, Satan was in heaven with his angels and having obviously impact upon the world. He's the accuser. His, his role as Ha-Satan was to accuse the brethren of breaking the law. And so that was his role, to, and that's what Job said. Satan was among the sons of men, and God said, hey, have you considered my uh, servant Job, you see? And so that's what we have here, and, uh, and now Satan in that place. That's just radical to me to think that Satan, who caused Adam and Eve to fall and gain that title deed, had access to the heavens in there. That's, that's what it seems to say. That's where he was hovering by and through and he was taking all souls into the covered place Sheol and he was putting them in prison uh, and, and paradise all the way up till Christ has the victory and then Satan's like uh-oh you know 
I'm in trouble now. And then, and then Revelation says, the, the baby of the woman ascends to the father. All right, so keep with me. Uh, with the throwing out of Satan, uh, heaven is told to rejoice. The earth is in for one heck of a time, though. Okay, And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 when he said, the world has never seen and never will see. Uh, the stuff that's going to come down on you guys and it's going to pour out upon Jerusalem and it's going to pour upon this people and I'm leaving 12 apostles here that they are going to guide you all the way up until the end and tell you how to make it through this thing and so hang on, right? Uh, uh, This was the earth during the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Verse 12 tells us that the devil has great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. This short time until the end of a times and times and a half a time, which is what Revelation 12, 14 says, is until Satan is bound and cast into the abyss at the second coming of Christ. So he has a window of time here from Christ's resurrection to him coming back 70 AD. That's 30 AD, 70 AD. That's a 40 year window of time. That's a generation of time in biblical language. And he comes back because he's been kicked out of heaven and he knows I have a short time. So I am gonna rail upon the people here. All the children of the, mother, of the woman that we just talked about last week, all of them are going to be uh, railed upon by me and my demons. Saying the devil was cast out of heaven at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection causes real heartburn uh, for people who see prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And they say if Satan was cast out at the cross, like Jesus said he would, and like Jesus said, all power was given to me, and yet we still think he has power on this earth. If Satan was cast out on the cross, how could it be said that he only had a short time if he's still here is the thinking. Um, Some theorists who do not believe in the errancy of Scripture try to get around this problem by saying that Satan was indeed cast out at the cross, but the short time that he had left uh, to rule and reign is relative to eternities. And so therefore, a short time for the eternities could linger out till today. And so he's still doing his thing because people do not want to believe what Revelation says, how he was cast out. He had a short window of time and then he was thrown into the lake of fire with his angels and everything else. So it's been almost 2000 years since the cross. But in terms of eternity, some people say that's still a short time. That's how they explain it. Uh, This solution runs into a problem of taking uh, any meaning out of the time statements in the Bible which we have seen. Futurists, they go, they try to get around the problem of Satan's short time by contending that uh, this is, this casting out happens in the future. You see, he hasn't been cast out yet. He hasn't been cast down to earth yet. So they're waiting for what we're reading today to happen down the road. And thus his short time is the 1,260 days of revelation, which is going to happen in the future. That's how they see it. The problem with this is that to fit Satan having a short time here into their theoretical framework as futurists puts the casting out of Satan in the future. And this would mean that Satan is currently still in heaven. He's still accusing us before the throne of God day and night, which uh, is almost a heresy. 
That's almost a heresy, and yet I hear it taught all the time. Satan is up there, and he's accusing us, and Jesus is saying, no, they're mine, they're mine. And there's a war still going on, and we still have to fear all this. Instead of looking at what the Scripture is telling us, that this is when it happened, it's been taken care of, the victory has been had, and now we're back to the Garden of Eden state where people make choices, just like Eve did. She made a choice. And so that's what we're talking about. Satan being cast out of heaven to the earth around this time of the cross also creates problems for those who would propose that the millennium was a, was a period of time between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., as most full preterists teach. I don't teach that, uh, believe that either. Revelation 12 shows Satan being cast from heaven to earth at the resurrection and not into the abyss. He still had a short time until he was bound for uh, the millennium, which I believe we'll talk about when we get to that chapter in 19. So this short time was the time and times and half a time that the woman and her children were protected on earth from his presence. For one, those 1,260 days, that is how long, three and a half years, the woman and her children were protected from his influence. It was at the end of this time when the power of the Jews was shattered, according to Daniel, chapter 12, 6, and 7, and that the second coming happened, Satan was bound, and the millennial reign began. That's, that's how you, I look at it. So with Satan being cast out at the cross, the accuser is no longer accusing us before the Father. That myth and if I could sit down with people who teach it and we just talk about the scriptures plainly and without emotion and stuff and just talk through it, it's a myth because Jesus had the victory in ascending and overcoming the cross and ascending. He had the victory. All power in heaven and on earth was given to him. There's no more accusing necessary. And by the way, remember, when we talk about accusing, that has to be by the law because by the law, we are knowledgeable of sin. If the law has been nailed to the cross, there's no accuser necessary. The Hasetan was necessary in, during the time of the law with the Jews. But as a fallen angel, that's all he was, who fell deeply and darkly, doesn't mean there's not evil still. We still have evil. It's darkness versus light. But he's just not the angel up there doing the accusing. So going from having an accuser before the throne to having a great high priest there now. You see the difference? We once had the accuser before Christ had the victory making the accusations. Now we have the great high priest there before the throne making positive claims for those who are his. Big, a very different picture than what we tend to teach. We'll talk about that again when we get to the chapters as we do with everything in, in this book. So this causes John to write that what I just said here, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Okay, he's no longer in that picture anymore. Remember Jesus, right after his resurrection, he told his disciples that he had all that authority. That's Matthew 28. A loud voice in heaven now declares this as a fact. He has it. I ask you strongly, do you believe Christ has had the victory? Do you believe that partially? Do you believe it fully? What does the scripture say? You take those three things and you work it out yourself. And I challenge you, not believe me, but work it out yourself. 
He has had the victory. He has all power and authority. And when that occurs, Satan is cast out. All right? A loud voice from heaven declares this. And with Satan being cast out of heaven, the salvation authority of Jesus and his kingdom have come. And we are part of that kingdom spiritually here on earth. The full reign of the kingdom is not yet, however, in Revelation. We haven't come to the full kingdom here in Revelation. I believe we are fully in the New Jerusalem uh, from heaven, being part of his kingdom, which is within us as believers. But the full kingdom here in Revelation hasn't happened. This was the already but not yet of the kingdom. The full kingdom of, would come at Christ's second coming, which in Revelation here hasn't occurred yet uh, in 70 AD. Uh, so uh, the kingdom coming with power, as Mark 9 talks about. So when Satan was bound and thrown into the lake of fire and all that, that still hasn't happened yet in Revelation. So this is what many are waiting for in the future. And so here lies the difference between a, future, uh, a preterist and a futurist is that the preterist says it's happened, it's done. We trust he's had the victory. We trust it's a spiritual kingdom. We trust that God is reigning and has all the power. And the futurist says, nah, there's still this thing going on. And boy, be careful of him and think about him and don't rejoice in the victory and walk in it. All right, at verse 11, we read, and they overcame him who was thrown down to the earth, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not live, love their lives to the death. Okay? So we're given a threefold way that the saints in that day overcame Satan who was cast down to the earth. Uh, this, of course, speaks first by the blood of the Lamb. That's the first thing that John says. This is how the saints overcame Satan and his angels for that short period of time, being on them. They overcame by the blood of the lamb. And of course, we know that speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood. Uh, and of course, it's no mystery. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus in John 1.29, he says, behold, the lamb of God. Those are purposely chosen words, referencing, of course, the Old Testament when they would sacrifice lambs and goats and shed their blood, and uh, it, would, it, would, it would cause for temporary propitiation for sin on behalf of the nation when the high priest would do that. Uh, but this, of course, uh, is a, the fulfillment of that with Jesus being the, the, capital T, Lamb, capital L, of God, capital G. Going all the way back to the nation of Israel, Moses, it says, God says to Moses in Exodus 12, Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month you shall take unto him every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it unto the 14th day of the same month. Specific timing here on a specific day, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And then they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper, and on the upper door post of the house wherein they will eat, the, uh, eat it. 
and they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. We have shed blood. We have eating its flesh. Remember Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh, same parallel, him being the Lamb of God, and killing on a specific day, the time of Passover, all types of the Christ being the Lamb of God, uh, typifying what the ancient Israel had been doing for 1,500 years. The second way they did it, and it was through this blood that Satan was defeated. The second way was they overcame the Satan cast down to the earth through the word of their testimony, it says. Remember, unlike uh, many places today, to bear audible witness of the Christian faith to them in that time, 30 to 70 AD, meant complete ostracization from your community. In Jerusalem, it meant you lost job, family, even an ability to eat. That's why Paul was going around to Asia Minor and collecting gatherings for the saints in Jerusalem because they had no shot at life once you accepted Christ. Okay, so uh, uh, treacherous business, right? And yet uh, lives were lost and punishment and abandonment was there. But John says here the way they overcame was through the fruit of their lips, through their testimony on their mouth. To bear a faithful testimony of truth served to encourage their spirit and to fortify their strength to overcome the one who wanted them to what? Stay silent, not preach, not say what they believed. Be quiet about that. Don't say a word. Words are an amazing thing. Power. John, John Stephen, he's always talking about this, but they are. They, they're powerful. They're life-giving. They, they uh, possess an ability to encourage or give life. They possess an ability to kill. Words are powerful, powerful things. And um, the power and eternality of words can't be denied, you know, so especially from a biblical perspective. To prove it, all we have to do is remind ourselves that God in the beginning said, and it was, that he creates by his mouth, by his word, he said, and it was. He said, and it was. So apparently, to words of truth, they had the capacity for these believers in that nascent church to bring life and protection for them in that day. All oppressive powers, all oppressive powers seek for silence. They seek to shut people up. Uh, and where we know what Paul says is that where the Spirit of Christ is, there is liberty. There is liberty. And uh, we've talked, or John uh, Stephen has talked about how we don't extinguish people's words who differ with us. We don't shut them down uh, with our words because we're extinguishing the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Is don't extinguish people. And the Spirit is brought forth by the words that we share. It's just not by we stand there and the Spirit comes out. It's revealed through our words. That's why we have an open door policy here of, of what you believe and what you think and what you're suggesting is open. Say what you want. Believe what you want. You're welcome because your words won't be quenched. You can think. You can live. The Spirit will guide and love will move everybody to the common place. So we don't need to be dogmatic about things. So oppressive powers, they want your mouth shut if you go against the grain. They cannot stand that, and so they try to crush testimony. They try to crush words. That willingness to bear witness of Christ in that day, amazing. That, I mean, it's bad here in this state for people who have left the Mormon church to profess that they become Christian. It's bad. 
It's nothing like being in Jerusalem in the day of Christ and saying, I'm a Christian, I follow our uh, Meshiach. Uh, no, that meant, I mean, even death. It meant stoning. At least they're not doing that here. At least not with stones, but with words and reputation. Uh, the third way here in the King James was they did not love their lives to the death. Now, when you read that in the English, it's hard because it sounds like they didn't love their lives to the, to the death. But it's an awkward phrase. The RSV says, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That makes it much more clear. They, in other words, they didn't consider themselves so valuable that they would run from martyrdom. They simply said, I follow Christ, and I don't love my life more than I'm going to stop my words I will experience death if necessary. That's that testimony going back for the shed blood of Christ. They were willing to be martyred for the faith, basically. And if they were able, John says, in these ways, they were able to conquer him who was cast down uh, to earth. What a victory. Same principles apply today. We don't talk about a principal application to our lives much here because it's uh, revelation. But every time a, a person is willing to die, of course physically, like maybe they do in North Korea, places like that. But any time a person's willing to die to their self, be buried with Christ, uh, rise up to him to new life, set their will and ways aside for his will and ways, that death is a martyrdom. And it's a beautiful thing within the faith that people are able to do. So uh, just as Jesus' death on the cross ultimately had victory over Satan, as he said it would, uh, we too, uh, through our death in Christ, we too are over, able to overcome him. I love that devotion uh, to write things, of course. Uh, but when people are fearless in the face of personal loss for a principle, there's nothing like it. When they won't be stopped for what they believe, there's nothing like it on the face of the earth. And, you know, they go to the cocktail party at Christmas time. They've left the certain church. They're there, and everybody's of that religion. And someone says, we haven't seen you for a while at the whatever. And they say, that's because I don't believe in it anymore. I believe in Jesus Christ. Boom. Boom. Clink. Silence. And people move away. Same, same principle. It's a beautiful, beautiful principle. Uh, at this point, John adds, ready? Now, here's the proof. Ready? Therefore, rejoice, verse 12. Oh, heavens. Hey, he's been kicked out. Rejoice. And you who dwell in them, the heavens, because Satan and his angels have been cast out. Then he adds, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil, devil, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his that he has a short time. Okay, so he's been up there in heaven. He's been cast down, and 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 they say heavens are rejoicing when the sun uh, rose to the Father. He's cast out, but woe to you who are on earth. He's been cast down, and he's angry. He's got a short time. All right, let's read on to verses 13 through 17. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That is, that is Jerusalem. That's spiritual Jerusalem, who has given birth to the male child. 
And we proved that by scripture last week. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time for the presence, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out from his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So she had the Christ child. She has more offspring. Who are they? They're the believers in Christ, the followers who keep the commandments of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. So go back with me. Verse 13, it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He persecuted Jerusalem who gave birth to the male child. The dragon was thrown down and uh, freshly booted out of heaven and ticked that he has a limited time, no more as an accuser of, a brother, of the brethren, but to torment because he only has a little bit of time on earth. He comes and persecutes the woman who we proved four places in scripture last week is Jerusalem and the rest of her offspring, those who believe and follow Christ. Satan being loosed on the earth during the period between, 70 and, uh, between 30 and 70 is consistent with the rest of what the New Testament teaches about him then. Paul, remember, said this. He said, Satan, the God of that age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. Satan was the God of that age. Okay, we try to apply him to the God of every age. He's not a God of the age of victory. He's not. Okay, uh, Peter said the devil was walking about like a roaring lion. Why? Because he knew his time was short. He'd been cast out of heaven at the resurrection of Christ, and he was trying to devour anyone. And that's why what we've been studying in these meteor books of the New Testament have been the apostles saying, hang on, hang on, don't give up. I, we know it's brutal, it's tough, but hang on, your reward is coming with Christ. And John said the whole world in 1 John 5, 19 was under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world, okay? And that world there is Gehei, which is almost Gehei in every one of them, which means the whole area and not the whole cosmos, which futurists love to say. It's not the whole world, it's the whole area of Israel. So the New Testament does not support the idea that Satan was bound in the abyss during the period of 30 to 70, but I would suggest uh, taken contextually, we can clearly see, as we will get into later chapters of Revelation, that he's been cast into the abyss forevermore. Okay, more on that later. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, Old Testament reference, that she might fly into the wilderness, remember these words, to her place where she is nourished for time and time and times and a half from the presence of the serpent. Okay, she flies with the wings of an eagle into the wilderness and she's nourished for these 1,260 days. This appears to be returning to the subject of verse 6 where the woman escapes the serpent into the wilderness. So what we have here is a picture of 
the church in Jerusalem, the woman giving birth to the church, Jerusalem giving birth to these believers who follow Christ, escaping out into the wilderness on the wings of eagles. Looking back to God's deliverance of his old covenant people from Egypt, remember this, and their subsequent journey, where did they go? They left bondage and they entered into the wilderness trying to escape the, the depredations of Pharaoh and his armies. Exodus 19.3.6 says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation, just like Peter said Christians are. And these are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel, he tells Moses. So we have similar language there to the nation of Israel in bondage to Jerusalem. He tells Moses, tell him, hey, I have bore you out on eagles' wings. We have the same picture coming out here. Of course, Passover is the commemoration of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus, the Lamb of God, fulfilled this Passover in setting us free from Satan's kingdom. Just as God's people under the Old Covenant experienced a wilderness period, again, just as the uh, children of Israel experienced a period after bondage in the wilderness before entering into the promised land, um, So would God's covenant people now come out of Jerusalem and the same thing would happen. The same thing. I suggest that the church in apostolic days, there would be a wilderness of time and that would be a time of trial and testing that, that they experienced. That was what they were in, a time of trial and testing in that wilderness that they escaped to, all right? And they were delivered there from Satan's kingdom ultimately uh, at the time of the kingdom coming with Christ's second uh, uh, advent. So, in this we're able to understand Jesus saying in Mark 9, 1, Verily I say unto you, there be some of you that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they see the kingdom of God come in power. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't talking about something different. He was talking about the coming of that kingdom, and some were there who would actually see it come. In this view of the second coming of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, uh, is analogous to the time when the old covenant people first went through their wilderness time, and then they entered into the promised land by Jesus himself, uh, meaning Joshua, Yeshua, the Old Testament, who led them into the promised land. The wilderness time period is given 1,260 days in Revelation 12.6, time, time, and half time in Revelation 12.14. As we mentioned last week, the ending of a time, times, and half time is given in the book of Daniel as the time when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. That's when it will end. Okay? So, when was the power of the holy people completely shattered? Completely, friends. Completely shattered. 
at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the Temple Mount was leveled to the ground and all the genealogy burned. They didn't know who was a high priest and wouldn't be. They didn't know who was from what family. And the nation is gone. That was its that was the shattering that Daniel talked about. And at the end of that shattering would be the ending of the period of time. Okay? So it happened in 70 AD with that destruction. Once again, notice that Satan is loose on the earth up until that time. Uh, and then it ends. So we can't help but note that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And that the span of time between Christ saying, I will come back is 40 years. In 30 AD, he said, a generation will pass and all these things will happen. 80, 70, 40 years, it happened what he said. 40 years for the nation of Israel, 40 years for the believers in Christ to go through that experience in the wilderness of Satan heaping down upon them. All right? In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, turn to it if you want to have your eyes open by the writer of Hebrews about all this I'm trying to explain. Uh, the author talks of a parallel between what the Jews experienced in the wilderness and what, the, what his readers of Hebrews in that day were experiencing. Uh, so turn with me to Hebrews 3, 14, and where the writer makes these same clear connections between the saints then and the children of Israel of the past. Verse 14, he says, For we are made partakers of Christ." If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. That's another apostolic uh, approach to hold till the end. Hold on because it's bad now. You're in the wilderness. Hold on. While it is said today, if we, ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Meaning that in the day when our forefathers were in the wilderness and they were provoked to rise up in rebellion and to murmur and all the things that it says. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he had grieved 40 years. Wait, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believe not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This is the same thing the writer of Hebrews is telling the Christian church there at that time. If you lose belief because of what's being heaped upon you, you will not enter in. You will not be part of those who are saved from this deluge of, of, of horribleness. And then you move to Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 9 and 11. And he says, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the example of unbelief. I would add of our forefathers who stopped believing in the wilderness by the trials of, of evil upon them in that place. And they, they lost, they died in the wilderness. So the writers of the New Testament, the apostles are saying, don't give up now. We're in the wilderness time, but there's a place coming. You'll be bore with angels' wings to that place, and you'll escape from this. Okay? So it seems that the writer of Hebrews is tying several things into these ideas here. He talks about entering into rest and the people of his day. And um, 
So I think those points are significant in talking about this. I think this is a model all individuals have today. I think the model carries forward in our spiritual lives. That we too, we come to know Christ by faith. We have that experience. We enter into the wilderness. And it's a time of trial and testing. Do you believe really what you say? And as long as you're murmuring and, and, and having difficulty with that, you stay in the wilderness like they did for 40 years, wandering around. And only when you trust God with where he's leading you are you taken by Jesus, Joshua, into the promised land. And when you enter that promised land, crossing over the Jordan, by the way, you enter into it, and what you're doing there is you are battling with opposition. They didn't enter into the promised land and rest. They entered into the promised land and learned to overcome themselves. But before that happens in a Christian's life, they have to go through the wilderness experience first. That's what's pictured in the old covenant. That's what's pictured here with the new covenant. We also know that John says here, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. That's the 1,260 days. That was three and a half years prior to 70 AD in all probability that they got out of there before everything fell apart and they were saved in that promised land from, what was ha from that wilderness. Uh, again, she is taken into the wilderness as the children of Israel, leaving the threat of Egypt, and there she, true Jerusalem, comprised of real believers, would be nourished for three and a half years. Uh, this is what Revelation is telling us what happened to that body of believers in the last days when Satan was roaring as a lion trying to devour anyone he could before the second advent. We note that the picture in the Old Testament of the children of Israel, there's all these pictures of them entering into the wilderness and complaining about their nourishment. They're always complaining about, oh, that we had the leeks and the cucumbers and blah, blah, blah. Oh, we are tired of this manna, this manna, this manna. So God gives them pheasants. Ah, oh, we're going to die of thirst. You let us out here to die of thirst. And that's the material application of the children of Israel, materially not trusting God would care for them. And so the same picture is here with the apostolic church being bore and, and protected that they would be nourished. They would be taken care of. But I believe it's with uh, maybe some uh, material things, but also with spiritual blessings. Okay, so, and you know, we can all personally attest probably if you've been a Christian for any amount of time that God allows us to wander and worry about where our nourishment's going to come from uh, sometimes from day to day. He allows that just like he let the children of Israel wander and he let his early Christians in Jerusalem wander until Paul brought those uh, support from other places. We too wonder, God, you know, are you? he lets us do it. And he allows that knowing he will come through somehow, knowing he's going to come through, but to have us decide if we're going to trust that or not. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. That, you know, if you're a biblical literalist like futurists are, really? Is, we have an actual serpent spewing water out of his mouth to get a woman? We've already talked to you about the biblical language of what he's saying, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Um, we've already talked about the symbolism of water is always in relation in floods to war, to deluge of armies coming in. That's all through scripture. We've used 
dozens of scriptures to prove it. And so this speaks to me that all the enemies who were flooding out of the serpent, whether they be the Gnostics, whether they be the uh, Romans, whether they be the Jews who hated Christians, whoever they were, they were all flowing out like an army out to get the woman who did what? Who's the spiritual Jerusalem who gave birth to the Christian church. Uh, but, ready, the earth, that's Gehei there, the area, not the world, the earth helped the woman. Now remember, in Scripture we learned in, in Revelation that the sea and rivers and water in Revelation always represent flood, right? Armies, enemies coming in, and land always represents Israel in, in Revelation. So here he says, but the land, Israel, you could say, Help the woman. And the land opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. How is that possible? How do you interpret that? Do you remember what the, just recall, land and sea, right? Um, according to verse 16, Israel, being called earth here, swallows up the, the deluge, the flood, the armies, upon itself and saves true Jerusalem, the woman, uh, and her children. How did Jerusalem do that? How did Israel do that? Because Israel bore the wrath of the Roman army and they were obliterated as a result and therefore the Christian church was left alone. So we have those things fitting into place that we've been talking about for quite a while. Now we see when he says, but the earth, Israel, helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. What he's saying is that Israel opened up its mouth and took the flood of venom coming out of Satan and the Romans and, and everybody else, the, the zealots of the, of the Jewish faith who were in fighting with the others. It just took it all upon itself. And it's them doing that, not purposefully, unwillingly, but them having that happen to them, they swallowed up the flood and the Christians escaped uh, for the 1,260 days prior. So, uh, spiritual Jerusalem remains, material Jerusalem destroyed. It is the earth or fallen Israel who absorbs the metaphorical flood of the Romans, as Israel had received the bulk of the Roman assault, scorched earth everywhere, Galilee, everything, wiped out crops, finally came, besieged the city five months, talked all about that, while the Christian church fled to Pella. Now, this is a, uh, this is what we get from uh, sectarian history. This is what we get. We don't know this. It's just part of the tradition. So another angle to this, which we learned from Josephus, was there was a drought, and we've talked about that at this time, which perhaps also allowed the church to escape across the Jordan into Pella. They had to cross the Jordan to escape from Jerusalem and go to Pella. So that drought was another way that we could uh, view the earth swallowing up uh, the venom of the serpent, but that, I don't know. It's possible. We know there's many applications of biblical prophecy going on at times, so it makes it difficult. According to Eusebius, and this is a long time after the fact, <coughs> but church historian Eusebius said, quote, the members of the Jerusalem church, so we're talking about the children of the woman, 
by means of an oracle given by revelation to acceptable persons there, meaning someone said, I am telling you what you need to do to survive, probably scripture here, were ordered to leave the city before the war began and settle in a town in Perea called Pella. And that's where we get the idea that that's how the Christian church survived is they escaped. And if we take what Revelation says, they must have escaped 1,260 days before the real heat fell. They'd been in the wilderness, Satan cast out. Since Christ, he ascends, 30 AD, whatever year it is. And for that whole time, they're experiencing pain and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. And then Revelation says, but uh, Jerusalem, the woman is given wings and she's bore out. And she goes to a place where she has safety. Josephus says that it is uh, Pella where they went, and Eusebius confirms that. So fleeing the imminent war, Jewish Christians, Mother Jerusalem, were flown on eagles' wings to this destination, fitting the Exodus parallel that we get in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, Pella had the favor of Rome. So to escape to Pella would mean you were going into a Roman providence, and nobody would bother you. If you were there, you weren't... You weren't going to be bothered, which is like, it was probably the safest place to be, even though Rome was attacking uh, Jerusalem at this time. Uh, but the, the uh, journey wouldn't have been easy because they did have to cross the Jordan. And if it wasn't dry because of a drought, that would have made it really difficult. But listen, in this verse, God seems to part the river Jordan, allowing the people to pass just as he had done with the Israelites uh, in Israel. I mean, he did something that they got across. And in the same way that the Israelites were saved from the plagues of Egypt uh, uh, in Exodus, remember those plagues, the Christians in Israel were also saved from the seven plagues in Revelation, which we talked about several months back. We talked about how those plagues fit the uh, Exodus plagues right on the nose. We talked about that and how the Christians escaped those plagues just like the children of Israel escaped them when they were heaped upon Pharaoh. Remarkable. Uh, fitting. Then the dragon was enraged against the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring and those who obey God's commandments and, and hold the testimony of Jesus. So we remember the literary device of recapitulation in Revelation where it, re, it goes back, it says something, it's out of order, it's not chronological. It's like a movie of all kinds of scenes, backward and forward. That's how Revelation reads. It is not a chronological order of events. So here he's re recapitulating, showing that when cast from heaven, he, the, Saint, the dragon was enraged to make war against those Christians who received the Messiah, who got him booted out. And he wanted revenge for that short window of time before the end would be. Uh, remember, Satan has been defeated. That's why he was so angry. When was he defeated? At the cross. Okay? And he knows that there's a short time in the Greek. I think it's techno, tech, uh, tech, tech, what we get tachometer. It means short time. It cannot mean thousands of years. So he knew it would be a short time. And he's, he's, he's really uh, angry. And his whole purpose is to catch Christians before Jesus returns. Knowing he's going to be cast into the abyss, he's going to be bound, he's lost already. And yet he's, that is his uh, temperament, to destroy, to ruin what is ahead. In spite of this, he still tries to win. Most of the New Testament are the apostles. If you just read it with these eyes, 
the apostles are saying, and I'm just going to say this and we'll wrap it up. From the beginning of the first epistles, the apostles are saying, be careful. The time's coming, but not yet. As the epistles closer to 70 AD are written, the, the apostles write, it's getting closer. And as they get closer and closer to that end, the apostles say, even John in 1 John, 1, 1, 2, or 3 says, we said, look for the Antichrist. There are Antichrists all around us. The time is upon us. Peter says the time is now. It was upon them. And the apostles writing letters and their advice was to stop the saints from falling to all the ways of Satan and to protect them from uh, this monster that had been cast out of heaven and was working upon them now to ruin Christ's plan. All right, let's stop there uh, and let's pick up questions, comments. Please don't be shy. Whoa, boy. Oh, and remember, say your name. I thought Mallory had a question. <laughs> You got to use the mic, brother. Just say your first name, if you would. Hey, I'm Dave. Uh, Sean, in, in Luke 10:18, I think it is, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Uh, how do you interpret that? It seems like it's talking in the past, from what I can tell in the Greek. How do you harmonize that? With I haven't thought about it. I haven't harmonized. I don't know, but I have to look. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Does he say, I saw? Yeah. What's the, what is it? Uh, can you read it? Wait, give him the mic. Let him read it. If you have it. Yeah, I'll pull it up. You want it in the King James? or Yeah, King James. And just give us a couple verses before the context. I'm curious oh, oh, to hear okay. what he's saying. Yeah. Let's see here. Okay. Yeah, let me get, pull it up here. Sorry about that. Just, just a minute here. It's all right. It's never easy. Especially on devices. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'll, I'll go from 14, okay. um, so we get a little bit of context. It says, but it, <clears throat> but it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than you. And now Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. And he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through his name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan fall from like, as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Okay. How I would interpret that, Dave, now knowing that, is that he was talking about uh, them having the power. Prior to him even going in John, he says, the time now is, Satan's over. Before he had even taken the cross. So I think he's saying the same thing. I think he's saying, you have power because I'm here. It wasn't like he had to, again, actually do the cross for him to be able to say it. He knew he had done it. And so that is what he was saying. That's how I would interpret that, for whatever that's worth. Anybody else? All right. Uh, thank you for your teaching, Sean. Um, I have a few questions. Yes. If Satan is cast out, if he's no more, like he's not the accuser of us anymore. Yeah. Do you think that his demons are still manifest in the world? No. 
I think because Revelation says Satan and his and his angels were cast into the lake of fire. Oh, his angels too. What I do believe, uh, Patrick, uh -huh. is that uh, we have it in ourselves to create enough evil within ourselves that we don't need the accuser of the Old Testament who was there under the law to do that job. And I think by talking about him as having some power uh, negates uh, Christ. What else? Awesome. I have another thing for you. Um, in Malachi chapter 3, Yeah. because this is confusing to me, it says, and I'll read for context, Behold, I will send my messenger, I'm curious who the messenger is, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand who, when he appeareth, for he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap, uh, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering on, of righteousness. Uh, so, I'm just curious, is that Jesus coming to the temple in 70 A.D.? It's Jesus. Uh, oh, and who's the messenger as well? The messenger is John the Baptist, as Jesus says in Luke. He says that's who he is. That's the messenger coming to bring the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts yeah. of the fathers to the children. Yeah, that's John the Baptist, absolutely preparing the way. And mm -hmm. when John the Baptist came, what was his message? The axe is laid at the, at the tree. It was a very ap uh, apocalyptic message. Mm -hmm. You better get ready because the axe is here. That's verbiage to say this tree is going to fall. And so I think that uh, when it talks about Christ there as an allusion to Christ, it's talking probably about his whole thing. I haven't looked at it. Might be talking about his whole ministry. Yeah. Might be talking about his birth and life. Might be talking about part of his end. I don't know, but I'd have to look at that. Because it sounds like second coming when it talks about finest fire and stuff like yeah, that yeah but also he came baptizing with the holy spirit oh, that's true. and with fire so i probably something to do that's more true. with that and so i have one more then i'll let you go yes uh so if there's no more hell for us uh. then what is uh what is what is uh the punishment for the wicked the covered place is gone because it says that hell satan and his angels were cast into the lake of yeah. fire right and we'll see contextually i think that makes sense in revelation if that's fulfilled, that's a great question. What is the result? The way I understand resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the way I understand what fulfillment looks like, I think, and there is so much room on this, Patrick, you have to decide for yourself, but I think that everyone, God has had the victory and that everyone will receive what they have sown in their life, that they, if they have sown to the spirit, they will be rewarded with a spiritual body that resides in heaven that is uh, uh, commensurate with the spiritual growth that they attune to here. If they focused on the flesh in this life, their spiritual body will be diminutive. It will be nothing. They will reap what they have sown. And I think that is by entering in, they will be purged of God's fire and they will, be, they will lose all that they built on, kingdoms of sand, until whatever rock was them will remain. That's how I see it. That's how I believe it. Now remember, that's the whole world. What about those who were Christians, who sold out for Christ, who lived to the Spirit? 
different st story. They are God's sons and daughters. Remarkable difference in scripture between sons and daughters and, 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 and young ones and children and then the rest of the world. Yeah, that's how I see it. Thanks. Check it out, though. Test it. Going to Ray. And then Mallory. Uh, in, in verse 7, where it talks about Michael fighting uh, against the dragon and his angels, in the Mormon church, of course, they refer to Michael as Adam. Yeah. And they do that in the temple ceremony. Who is this Michael? And what relationship does he have to the Michael that is mentioned in Daniel 12:1? Same relation, same Michael, and he's an archangel. He's apparent, from what I've learned, he's the premier uh, captain of the angelic host, and he has the consummate power of the angels. And, and there are some uh, sects that believe that. Uh, that is another uh, name for Christ. Yeah, it, there, are, there are those who will say that. Yeah. And then you know the sect that will say that he was, became Adam? There's yeah. that sect. And so Michael is a bit of a mystery uh, because he does have great power. But we remember in Jude that Michael, uh, he was a humble guy because he didn't even argue with Satan over the body of Moses, according to that, that story. Yeah. So unique character, but we don't know that much about him. And Jehovah's Witnesses think Jesus used to be Michael. Yeah. There you go. And our last question of the afternoon. Will there be snow outside is the question. Yes. No. I'm Mallory. And I want to know, is the second coming a man-made term kind of cons idea thing? Or is it in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. The only word in the Bible is parousia. Uh -huh. The word is parousia, and it's never translated into English as second coming. It's translated as his coming, uh -huh. but the word parousia is really interesting, Mallory, because what it means in the, in the uh, ancient Greek way of using it is that when a king comes to a place and he stays for a while, it's not the way we view the second coming of he's going to come and it's done and it's over. And if you see it in that sense, you'll see how uh, the rest parts of Revelation fit into him being Christ being here during that time and do not here with us, but with them back in before he, his second advent of coming with the angels and the believers in 70 AD. So but second coming is not in, in scripture. So I was trying to explain it to my husband who wanted to understand what preterism was. And so. Would the second coming in those words be Fulfilled. like when he came again, was when he rose again? No. Or when he was just came to the came earth? Back. When he came back. Okay, he died uh -huh. and ascended to his father. Uh -huh. That was his resurrection. And then his parousia would be when he comes back yes. to deliver uh, righteous gifts to those and judgment upon others. And that preterists believe was fulfilled yes. when Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay, and was that when he was when he died on the cross or when he rose again when Jerusalem was destroyed? Ne neither. It was when he returned in 70 AD. Okay? Died on the cross? Yes. Right? Uh-huh. And uh, then was resurrected 3 days later? Yes. And then some days later ascended to his father and then 
40 years later, came back in 70 AD, 40 years later, and destroyed Jerusalem. What? In his form? No. Uh, uh, it, it's debated in every Not life. in the Bible. That's not in the that Bible. That is in Scripture. That he came in 70 AD and destroyed the chapel, or just that the chapel, that the, the, the temple was destroyed. It's, it's all that the temple was destroyed, and it happened with all these signs that Jesus said would accompany his coming back, which he gives in Matthew 24. But we still don't have anything in the Bible that says, and Jesus came back no. to earth in no. 70, 80. No. no. That I, no. I was like, oh my gosh, I no. missed something. There's nothing okay. at all that says that, which is why the view is so debated. Yeah. Because they say, one, how come nobody is left? Well, the, my answer is that's because he took his believers with him. He took yeah. them with him. That's what he said he was going to do. I'm going to take you, rescue you from this day, from this end. And so he took them and the rest that continues on and on and on as it was meant to be. Yeah. So, but in terms of the Bible saying he's coming and no, 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 no. It's a hotly debated topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Good question from my oldest daughter. All right, anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord, seek you, boy, we need you. Lots of stuff, this meaty topic, and uh, grateful for the things we have learned, though, uh, here in Revelation. And we pray that we will walk out, uh, maybe not relying any on information so much, but what's, uh, how do these things work to us being Christians today? What does it mean to believe this way or that way? And to maybe drive us, Lord, by your spirit to test all things, hold fast to what is good. Uh, but along the way, let us be Christians. Help us to remember that you, uh, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, is, is as someone asked me earlier, the Alpha and the Omega. And we, we trust in him that you loved us so much, you gave us your son who lived like we do, but not as we do, and who died and then rose and gave us life. And so help us to look to him in all of our trials and difficulties. Bless people here, people who aren't here, and help them to walk in the Spirit, be renewed in the Spirit and in their faith. We pray specifically for Diane, surgery on her elbow. And I wonder if it's the same. Uh, oh, and then Diana for peace and comfort as she's recovering in that, in that place and that she'll be able to get out of it. Uh, we pray for Gracie and this child who's enduring chemotherapy and radiation. And we pray that you'll comfort uh, her. I saw a picture of her the other day. Uh, little, little girl, no hair, with parents trying to support her. We pray for her, Lord, and pray that you will uplift that family and support them with your care. Make yourself known. We pray for Annette and Michael, their chemo and their surgeries. For Adam's mom in Colorado, Sue, who's going to have surgery. For Lisa, our, our young sister uh, in the faith who diagnosed with uh, stage 5 cancer throughout her body. That uh, she's not fighting it with, uh, with the drugs, but she's fighting it with uh, faith and hope. And we pray that you will uh, help her to uh, uh, be healed. And if not, help her surviving family to understand your ways. Uh, we pray for Daniel, our, our brother, and we pray that you'll keep him and strengthen him. And everybody else whose names that aren't on this list but should be, my own included, we just pray that you will sustain us. We will be grateful, humble, broken before you, realizing that you are God. We are your creations, 
some of us your children. And we pray that we will respond to you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.